Scott, the word capitalism. When I say the word capitalism to you, what are some of the instant things that come to your mind? Greed. Greed. Okay. What about when I say Excess. the Excess. What about when I say the phrase anti-capitalist or anti-capitalism? What are what, what are some of the what are some of the things that pop into your head? Freedom. <laughs> Somebody sure. fighting for freedom. Yep. Um and if you want to use the uh, the opposite of the capitalist idea, then uh, the, I'd I'd probably be called a commie or a socialist or something if yeah. I brought that word up. Yeah, it it seems weird to me how the how uh, seeing a picture of the future that is beyond capitalist structures is seen by so many people as a negative or or commie something pinko. that's unrealistic or yeah. actually capitalism works X Y and Z. You know, so uh, that that that's what's sort of been on my mind these past few days. I'll I'll speak a little bit later to um, a keynote that I did for New Music Gathering that sort of critiqued capitalism as it applies to the arts. But um, I, I feel like we're getting closer to really having to have that conversation actually as the wealth uh, gap continues to grow. More folks out here are struggling while more folks are, you know, flying their toy spaceships up into space and all of that stuff. I feel like as a conversation we're going to have to be more serious about or maybe... This is just another one of those times. Does this feel like a, a tipping point? I know that many conversations go over and over and over from generation to generation, but I don't know. When was the last time that there was a, uh, when there were major companies headed by people flying into space for fun? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a new thing. Yeah. So the reaction to that has to be a new thing. I think that we're on a tipping point on a lot of different levels. Yeah. This is just one of them. Yeah. I, um, in my keynote, uh, again, for New Music Gathering, I brought up some of the uh, content as produced by uh, Joe Button on the Joe Button Network. And there was something that I really wanted to share today. This is uh, pay-only content, so I can't link the uh, full interview. But basically, Joe Button and his team interview a guy named Grant Williams, who in the late 90s was accused of murder and sentenced to life in jail. Of course, he did not commit this murder. And after you know over 20 years, I think about 25 years, he was finally exonerated. And you know he left jail, and the first interview that he did was with Joe Button. I really found it. Uh, fascinating to hear him talk about the residual effects of spending that long in jail, not only spending that long in prison, but spending that long in prison knowing that you did nothing wrong. And mm -hmm. the mind games that can play with you anyway, they got into a conversation about how capitalism has a firm grip on the prison system. And I wanted to offer that as this week's downbeat. So let's take a listen. In order to buy that soap, mm. yep. you feel what I'm it's saying? A you want to eat, so it's different. Yeah. So I always—that's why I said prison kills your self-esteem. That's, that's the thing, I don't that's the thing that's that. always been shocking to me about when my homies went in and came back and told me stories is like capitalism is still very prevalent in there. The very, same way it is out here, right. dog. You know what I'm saying? The people that got money in there are much better off than the people that don't have shit. Fam, in New Jersey, right? Yeah. The governor, the old governor, Christy Whitman. Yeah. Her husband. Was the the nigga that you buy all the clothes from in Canteen? It was his company. Mm, mm. It's the governor of the state of New Jersey, mm. cause you can't wear your, your own shit no more, mm -hmm. right? right? So when you buy the 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 the, the Walmart Nikes, the, the Cole Nikes and shit, mm -hmm. you buying them from the governor's husband. With a little markup. Think about that, my nigga. And they selling they selling the cold Nikes that you could buy for forty five dollars for one forty, one fifty. The gray sweats with the no pockets? 
Them, they selling them for $35 and $40. Mm-hmm. The hang joints that cost you nine beans. And that's the governor's husband. That's the governor of the state's husband getting grant money and state money to do that. So when I was hearing that, when I was sitting here in this chair and you know doing my work and listening to that interview, I could not believe what I was hearing. We have all heard the phrase prison industrial complex mm-hmm. and, the, and the fear of... Uh, the rightful fear surrounding the privatization of prisons. But I think that we don't often think about the specific examples of what makes that sort of thing so dangerous. Had you ever heard anything like this? You know, people in government uh, positions being married to folks who have a direct connection with the money made from jail, and then you're all tied up with the state. So, of course, the governor yep. is thinking about that money. I, I That was new to me. Is, is this... Was that something that you had come across or thought about before? Yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I can't believe I knew that. it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, I've had questions. I have not questions. I've had conversations with people about uh, for profit prisons. Uh, it happened right around 2016 because after the election, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, of Republican representatives who were saying, "Okay, hey, let's let's take it easy on this whole abuse rape thing, you know, and and let, let, let's just let's just calm down on, you know, bashing on the white people and everything right at the same time that they're bringing back for profit prisons. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And when you realize this is going on, it starts you you see how nefarious it is because their profit depends on you staying in there yeah, yeah. and paying those prices, those markups or whatever for crap. And think about the black market that develops in a prison sure, as a result. Sure, you know. sure. And the COs, how they're involved with that mm-hmm. even, especially mm-hmm. bringing the drugs in. Mm-hmm. So when I think about anti-capitalist thought as we apply it to music or any part of the world, the first step toward really realizing some of these seeds that, you know, we can plant in people's minds, I think is helping folks understand that none of us are the actual capitalists. We are the workers in the system. We are the ones for whom, you know, all, all of this depends on so that there can be rich people. I feel like there are so many folks out here making, I don't know, a measly $150,000, $200,000, dollars maybe they wish, you know, not even those people who are standing up for a capitalist structure that at the end of the day is fucking all of us over. And it's easy to see ourselves as not direct victims when we hear stories like that, you know, of obviously we cannot uh, compare our current situations to someone who is in prison, much less wrongfully in prison. But I think if we understand little things like that, we can understand how we can shift all of our narratives and really understand that at the end of the day, racism is something that has to go away, but also capitalism is something that has to go away. And I feel like once upon a time, maybe if I were sitting here and it was the year 1963, if I talked about racism, there would be all sorts of folks that want to gaslight me into saying, oh, it doesn't exist. And what are you talking about? I feel like we're in that era right now when it comes to capitalism. For me to sit here and and try to affirm anti-capitalist thought seems a way too far left or or whatever for some people. But if we can apply anti-racism to music, I think we can figure out a way to apply anti-capitalism to music as well. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, that's sort of the, um, the the side theme for this week, but let's go ahead and, and get started. 
Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thank you, everyone, and welcome to Opus 112 of the Triloquy podcast. Returning listeners, thank you for keeping this boat afloat through your support. Uh, We are able to continue these conversations and offer something week to week that we really think can broaden people's thoughts and decolonize the world of so-called classical music to new listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast where we take the phrase classical music and recontextualize it for our own lives in an effort to really make the arts a place for more of us to really feel like ourselves and be ourselves. The uh, support for Triloquy is broad. If you would like to find out how you can contribute, just visit Triloquy.org. Triloquy is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds people who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. For more information, visit ShuttleworthFoundation.org. I'll have that link in the description. I also want to send a huge Thanks to New Music Gathering. New Music Gathering is an annual conference and festival hybrid dedicated to the performance, production, promotion, support, and creation of new and forward thinking music. I have the pleasure of offering the keynote for this year's New Music Gathering here in St. Paul. I'll have links to all of that sort of thing. Just such a such an honor. I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time here before we get into Movement One uh, talking about it, but. Scott, I always think about my beginnings in radio and uh, really digging through the CD library down there at WUOT. And I'll never forget finding the music of composer Angelica Negron and, you know, just the interesting imagery on the, you know, just the pictures on the CD, but also the sounds that were so different from the Haydn and the, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. folks are folks are uh, paying attention to. So what is she from? uh, She living? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, living uh, about about my age, you know. Mm. So just out, out here, and uh, you know, something that I that that really moved me from the new music gathering. So I, I'm thinking about Angelica Negron and one of these uh, new music composers who really opened the door for me to this brand new. Uh, just corner of so-called classical music that I had never really explored, that I was never really exposed to, looking up to her music and looking up to, you know, everything that she's putting out there through her art. And then fast forward to now, she is introducing me at a new music festival uh, and talking yeah. about how, you know, she looks up to our work and, and all that sort of thing. So, you know, just a really full circle moment for me. So, you know, shout out to all of the new music people out there. And thank you so much to New Music Gathering for having me as your keynote speaker uh, last week. There were all sorts of members of the Triloquy family involved in the new music gathering from performances to different speeches. So I wrote down the names of everyone that uh, I could remember. So shout out to uh, Garrett Schumann from Opus 34. Shout out to Katie Henriksen from Opus 9 of Triloquy. Over a hundred opuses ago. Shout out to Katie Henriksen. To Janice Lane Ewart. Thank you so much for uh, shouting me out and uh, saying hey at the Cedar from Opus 45. Davu Seru from Opus 41 giving some improvisatory uh, free jazz, so-called free jazz back then. Uh, Damien Strange, of course, from Opus 40 uh, played a huge role in the new music gathering, as did Sarah Greer from Opus 40, the woman who performed the, the work by Damien Strange. Um, of course, one of the Triloquy favorites, you know, huge shout out to Nirmala Rajasekar from Opus 25. Uh, not only did Nirmala performed 
But her daughter, Shruti, had a piece that premiered during uh, the new music Very gathering. Cool. So, you know, and she, she had a work that was actually out already that was also performed. It was called Morning Dew. And when I tell you the mix between the, um, the vena and the marimba, you know, when, when you get those two instruments playing the same melody and it's a heartwarming melody, oh my gosh, the tears are coming down. Yeah. My mask was wet. Yeah. The mask that I had on. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, and to everyone else who played a, a role in New Music Gathering, uh, shout out to Mary Kayumjin, uh, Laney, and everyone over there um, at New Music Gathering. Sasha, thank you so much. Uh, today's guest, Brittany McNeil, returns. We're going to offer part B of our conversation that uh, I shared the first part of with you last week, more on Brittany McNeil. McNeil as we get to the third movement. For, but for now, let's go ahead and jump into the first movement. I know, Scott, that you uh, were talking about how we wanted some more uplifting accidentals oh this week because yes. we've really been in the muck of it for a few oh, weeks. Man. But... It was, last week was grim, too. Just in, <laughs> in, in between the last time we recorded and today, I've just been up and down, up and down, and... Yeah, I'm glad to bring some positive. Yeah, and we're we're definitely going to uh, bring some positive. The first thing that I feel like we have to talk about, the first couple things, they aren't so positive, but I'm still going to send a sharp to the people of Haiti and Afghanistan. Since the last time we recorded, there's really been a lot going on in other parts in the world. So, you know, for folks who don't know, I'm reading here from The Guardian. It says at least 304 dead as Haiti struck by 7.2 magnitude earthquake. Just a little bit from the article here. At least 300 people have died with 1,800 injured and hundreds missing after Haiti was struck by a 7.2 magnitude earthquake that reduced churches, hotels, and homes to rubble in the latest tragedy to hit a Caribbean nation already mired in profound humanitarian and political crisis and still reeling from the recent assassination of its presidents you know so they have political turmoil the natural disaster the last earthquake in haiti wasn't all that long ago right you know it feels like they're still getting over that hump it's it's a it's a shame and it and it breaks my heart because Haiti for me and for so many folks specifically black folks Haiti is this example this global example of revolution and freedom for people of color, you know, and for this nation to have achieved so much and to have to deal with so much, it's hard to even know what emotion to feel. I've never had to deal with an earthquake, certainly no sort of tragedy um, like this. And, you know, my, my heart goes out to them. I, I can't even imagine. Really, I'm, I'm concerned for Haiti in the, in the coming days and weeks, though, because when you start having damage like that and infrastructure is being affected how do once you get say you find a survivor how do you get them to the hospital right is the hospital going to have power is there water i mean you know there could be all sorts of contamination issues with the water in the days ahead yeah i mean this is it's going to be a mess for a while now i think a lot about the elderly all yeah. of these people yeah. in assisted living you know yeah. what is their condition of course there are babies and very young children in this country and then on top of all of that we're still in the middle of this global pandemic, pandemic yeah, you know, so it's it's it, there's there's no winning for those folks, but we've gone through so much, you know, as a as a global people, and I know that there will be people to survive this and to have talked about the strength that it took to get through 
all of this uh, all of this mess but mm-hmm. it's 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 just so sad um I'm, I'm gonna have you know from a few opuses back uh i don't know if you remember on hell refuse say yeah we've been talking a little bit um you know just here and there and he's really doing a lot of research in the history of um haiti and how haitian people have impacted the world and world culture, certainly the culture of the United States. We like to think of this co- country that might not have so much to do with this, but there's so many connections. You know, something that Unheld put me on to is that the singer, the very famous singer that we know as Celia Cruz, mm-hmm. is actually, was actually a Haitian woman born mm. Celine LaCroix. Okay. That is something that I think is very significant. We love to talk about the the Cuban singer Celia Cruz, and you can't deny, Angel definitely would not deny that racism plays a role in there. In the Caribbean, being Haitian is sort of being less than. I've even talked with folks in the Bahamas who uh, talk about folks who are of Haitian descent sometimes having to deal with the cultural I hate to even call it racism, but the the cultural racism of being from a country like Haiti, and that had to be a a, a factor there for for the mm-hmm. uh, the legacy of Celia Cruz. I'll, I'll have uh, on Hilda uh, on uh, in some weeks to talk about uh, that a little bit more. But the other thing that he put me on to that I had no idea about was that the uh, founder of Chicago was Haitian. Did you know that a black man named Jean Baptiste Pointe du Sable is was a Haitian person who made it up here and found it Chicago. So one of the major cities of the world no, found it not only by a black person, but a Haitian person. Mm-hmm. So when we think about these, uh, th- this tragedy down there in Haiti, I hope that we can all just really consider Haiti as uh, a country with real people who have had real global impact on world culture and a people that we can't ignore. We can't just brush this off as another world tragedy. It's, it's something that, you know, we can, we can really have an impact on. So, you know, I'll, I'll post something about um, relief efforts and, and, and that sort of oh, thing. That's good. But my heart is really going out to everyone down there in Haiti. The other thing that I felt like that we really had to uh, talk about is everything that's going on over in Afghanistan. So yeah. as I've told you off mic, it's been a while for me. I've been, you know, working hard to keep my peace and protect my peace. So I haven't been watching cable news in a little while. So I've done some reading today and, and trying to catch up on um, the situation as far as uh, uh, Daesh, uh, the Taliban taking Kabul. Is there is there anything you can offer? What's your understanding of, of, of the situation? Yeah, we got... We got in. I don't know a lot of the details uh, because Afghanistan is something that um, I only thought about whenever something horrible surfaced in the news. You know, right. I didn't. I didn't keep track of this week to week. Yeah. But twenty-ish uh, years ago, after nine eleven, we got involved over there. It was uh, uh, George Bush. Uh, so we have had a presence through through W through Obama, Trump, and now six months into Biden's term that we have been funneling money and bodies and all that. And, you know, a lot of people want to say, well, there, there haven't been very many, uh, there haven't been any uh, American deaths the last couple of years. So it's stabilizing. We can start to pull out. What they don't say is about 2,500 Afghanistan people had died during that same course of time. So uh, my question is, you know, uh, (laughs) they still needed some support. I'm, I'm going and to say anybody who says that uh, Afghanistan army members or the people there are not fighting, well, 
2,500 people died in the last couple of years. So that, that's, that's not true. Yeah, that, that Western center thing, as long as our folks aren't dying, everything is fine. I pulled up a, an article from the uh, New York Times that I'll link. I want to read a little bit from it. It says, the day after the Taliban installed themselves in the presidential palace in Kabul, seizing control over Afghanistan two decades after being toppled from power by the U.S. military, Fears intensified on Monday about a return to the Taliban's brutal rule and the threat of reprisal killings. Thousands of Afghans flooded the tarmac on Monday morning at one point, swarming around a departing U.S. military plane as it taxied down the runway. That image. That's a horrible image. It is such a horrible image. And what's even more devastating is that there has been imagery that comes out that shows people even after the plane has taken off falling from the plane, doing everything they can. Most Americans, most of us could never imagine the level of desperation it takes to try to hang on to the wing of a plane just in case you survive wherever it, it ends up landing. That That's something that we can't even wrap our minds around. So I hope that more of us can just really get off our Western-centered thinking and consider more of the world, of course, you know, we can we can offer a lot of talk and we can say a lot of things and we can even uh, contribute to whatever efforts financially. But there there's so much that would have to change. And yeah. it, it's hard to know what the way forward is, especially considering what the U.S. government tried to do 20 years ago. And after all of this money spent, after all of these lives lost on all sides of the conversation on the battle, we're back at square one, it seems. Back to 1994. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the the problem is that is the ultimate example of a Kobayashi Maru, the, the unwinnable situation. There was no way to get out of that gracefully. And I don't care who's in office. Uh, and uh, no matter how we backed out of that, the opposing side would have thought the president did the wrong thing. Yeah. Now, while I don't, I, I, I can't even armchair, armchair quarterback this because I don't know all the ins and outs and the, and the yeah. finer points and all that. Um, I know that it couldn't have been an easy decision that our president made, but at least he owned it in his talk. At least he said, I made the decision, I stand behind it, and the buck stops with me. You at know, you, least he did that. You, you talk about George W. Bush being the the younger Bush or whatever. You, know, you, you have to remember that I was, I remember, and one of my earliest memories is, in kindergarten, the oh, kindergarten God. teacher putting on the inauguration of Bill Clinton. So, <laughs> you know, there, there, there's so much history there that can be lost by our generation simply because we're not old enough. You know, we were. Darling, there. sit down. Let me you tell know? you. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> um, my point was, you know, thinking about Bill Clinton. You know, my earliest sort of political uh, memories. I'm thinking about what was going on in Africa and uh, Rwanda and how the United States just sort of let that happen. And, you know, lots of people died over there and the United States did not intervene. And, you know, Bill Clinton is quoted somewhere. I can find it talking about that being a dark spot on his legacy, not sure. having intervened. So you, you, you use the phrase Kobayashi Maru. I, I get it how it can, you know, seem lose, lose, but it seems like, we have to at least try or we have the obligation to try to do something. But then again, I'm not a military general. I'm not in politics. So I don't know all the ins and outs. So it, yeah, it just either. seems like 
lose-lose, and it's hard to know even how to feel or or what to do. We can say thoughts and prayers, and like I said, we can even, you know, um, as individuals, send resources over there. But at the end of the day, it's not changing structural things. It's it's so hard no. to even imagine, you know, what, what we can begin to do. One Somebody brought up a, a one point that I thought was pretty important is the loss that the vacuum that we have now finding out about terrorist attacks that are being mounted from that region Mm -hmm. so we might we we are probably going to be vulnerable for another uh 9-11 style attack oh well good luck to us all i guess i don't know when we talk about capitalism and the ways that it just oppresses us all, it's hard to, you know, obviously I'm not wishing harm on anyone, certainly no one here in the United States, but let's decenter ourselves for a second. Do you not think other people, and, and let's even take this away from the conversation of the Middle East and the Taliban and all that, let's pretend we're French or Australian or whatever. Do you not think that the way the United States operates is looked down upon by by certain people. So I, I wonder what the global conversation of a Middle East, you know, trying to do something to the United States will be, mm-hmm. especially considering how, you know, how fucked up it all is. I mean, th- th- there's no easy way to have this conversation. I, I think we've had a smear across our face on the world stage for the last five years. Yeah. Don't you? I, I think for the past, for, for me, it's the past... 400. You know, it's not, I, I can't isolate it to Donald Trump because you talked about George W. Bush. And then we can even go back before I was born into, I don't know, Desert Storm was a thing. And how about this? The last four years seems to have been more pronounced how far we have fallen in public opinion around the for, world. For, for many people. For many absolutely. people. Absolutely. For many people. Absolutely. Anyway. And I, mean, I, I respect what you're saying. I don't want to discount what you were saying. Yeah. We're, listen, we are not. The, the people whose opinion you should be listening to, but I just felt like it's something that I needed to bring up because I've been thinking about it and trying to educate myself and read about it. So anything yeah. that you feel like you can do for either of these regions, Haiti, um, Afghanistan, you know, for the uh, folks incarcerated, you know, as we as we started with, there's a lot to deal with. And it's so easy to put on our blinders for the sake of our own emotions, our own our own feelings and and continue forward. But we, we have we have to really take a look at the world we live in and try to figure out some way to do something because there are so many people in need. There are so many people being oppressed and it's it's more than we can do in our lifetimes, yeah. of course, but there are things that we can do in our lifetime. So we're going to do our best. I'm going to, uh, we're going to transition out of this first accidental with a little music um, from Afghanistan, some Afghani classical music. So I did some research and uh, I found an instrument called the dambura. It's a, a two-stringed, unfretted instrument that is pervasive throughout a lot of the music of Afghanistan. There's a work here um, that I'm going to share. is performed by Madi Foladi and it's called Ba Mukabel Du Chashmam. Here's a little bit of this to transition us into our next accidental.
they have so many more notes than us. Just hearing, just hearing him sing these things. I think about the the Western tuning of the ear, the Western training that forces us into thinking about seven notes and an eight note scale and all that sort of thing. But he's singing all over the place mm-hmm. so incredibly. Is that sort of a gourd instrument situation or is there an animal skin stretched across there? Because it sounded percussive too while he was strumming. I think it's the the weight to which he's using the string. So it's just this wooden instrument with okay. you know the, these two strings and you mm-hmm. know he's he's going for it. Cool. Um yeah. There there's music happening in these places. There are musicians in these parts of the world whose art is, you know, destroyed after so much uh, tragedy and, and uncertainty and uh, political upheaval. You know, think, think about every one of your guitars just being gone. You know, all, all of the things that you love, all of the things I love just being gone because of political upheaval. We, we have to think about those folks. It's not just folks over here in the United States who have music that they perform and love. Yeah, mm. we, 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 I, I think that's something that we always have to think about. But who, anyway? Let's let's transition into something a little bit more positive. You let's brought in a, a little bit of news from the city of Madison, Wisconsin. How about well, what what accidental are you giving this? Sharp, sharp. This is a good one. Yeah. Um, after last week, I was hunting so hard to try to sh- because we hit on some articles that were you know poo pooing the quality of the art of, of of composers of color and insulting the entire movement to try to get some equity in this whole business. Mm-hmm. And I found another one like that that I could have brought in, but I went, no, 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 let's let's keep looking. And you know, by the way, Heather McDonald was on the uh, Megyn Kelly podcast naming and shitting on Daniel Bernard Romain. Oh I, I didn't God. give it a click because I'm not going to no. acknowledge that. Right. This this rhetoric is, I, right. I didn't mean to derail us, but that rhetoric is going and it's not going anywhere. Right. I think it's only going to grow and become more of a part of the conversation. Anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to hijack. No, that's okay. You can, you can hijack. I'll ride along. Um, but if you go to um, uh, Madison Magazine... Uh, I found a great article uh, about a woman who is trying to address these things at the um, at the university level, the conservatory level. Um, she is the founder of the Madison Conservatory. Music educator Melanie De Jesus, founder and director of Madison Conservatory, is challenging the traditional paradigm to make music education more inclusive for all students. So Shout this, out to Melanie De yeah, Jesus, so this, first of all. This is a spot... This is a great spot to try to make the change happen, right? And I think that this is a a really good point to illustrate to a lot of people, that uh, a lot of white people who I've been talking to about classical music and the racism issues, because they're confused by it and they say, so is that, is the response then to not do classical at all? No. And fine. (laughs) Yeah. If people ask me that, I'm like, yes. Throw it all away. If that's where your mind is, throw it all away. Fine. But in Madison Magazine here, in one of the graphs, it says, uh, there is a catch to this music. Centuries of classical music have been defined, practiced, and viewed primarily through the work of white male European composers. This is where it's, this is what's important. The myopic lens has led to limited points of entry for many young musicians of color who are rarely presented with classical concert compositions by Asian, Black, Latino, or non-male composers. Boom. This is what we're, this is what we're talking about. Yep. And Melanie is uh, addressing this. And it goes down further here to say, hey, look, Melanie loves Beethoven. 
Okay, we're not we're we're not canceling all the whole canon. <sighs> There's still room for the love for the classics, right? Okay, all right. Why go do ahead, we? Go. I'm not even going to press the soundboard, but this go. is my question: Why do we even have to go there? Why do we have to convince people? Well, I mean, we're not gonna. It's like, oh no, fuck Beethoven, damn. Like why? And and again, not necessarily, but I just hate that the conversation of well, it, we're not saying that we hate this has to be a part of it. I, why do we? Why do we have to kid glove the all of the people who just only know that Western European music. Because every person that is running that direction needs to hear this. Sure. Every person who is going, oh, oh, they want to cancel Mozart. Oh, my God. Oh, this, and Brahms. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No. And that's how y'all sound to me, too. <laughs> Do you like the impression? <laughs> okay. My point is that there are people out here like Melanie de Jesus that are trying to change this whole industry at the educational level, at the at the early conservatory level. And um, you you had highlighted a point there that you you wanted to bring in. I mean, all I was looking at here again in the article, uh, Melanie DeJesus says students of color comprise 75 percent of our total student body. Right. Every parent in the world wants a place where they know their children will shine. Whatever we're doing, we must be doing it right. So if you have these parts of the country of the of the music education ecosystem where a vast majority of the students are students of color that means the vast majority of the programming and the music has to speak to them and to their experiences mm. mm-hmm. so when we talk about we're not trying to cancel beethoven and brahms and all this stuff i mean sure n- maybe maybe we're not and the majority of this has to speak to them. So that means the majority of it cannot be music from that canon. And it can't be a view of the canon or a view of the phrase classical music that centers that because the community isn't centered in that. So why should the music education be centered in that? Why should the, in you mean in the canon, the European canon? Yes. Right. They, yes. I mean, there, there, there's just no, no, it shouldn't be. That, that's what I'm saying. There, there's no, there's no sense for it to be. So when we, have to you know again get get on this apology tour of no we're not trying to cancel this composer or or x y and z i think we have to consider what we're really saying when we're doing that we're just trying to kid glove the tradition without trying to radically get it out of here and if 75 percent of any student body of, of any music school are kids of color in my opinion that means most of the music has to speak to that and that's just that so and Melanie de Jesus is doing it yeah. there at, at Madison Conservatory. I'm gonna keep it real. I wouldn't imagine this sort of thing to be going on in Wisconsin after you know the things I see on the news. I mean, folks, what never wearing a mask over there and mm. X, Y, and Z. But I guess Madison is a little uh, exception I to would, the Wisconsin rule. Huh? I would move to Madison if there was a job there for me after one weekend or a I, week. I I loved it, <laughs> and uh, it is also one of the most beautiful states that I've ever driven through. Oh, really? It's it is. Full of natural beauty. Okay. I'm very big on Wisconsin. Okay. Did you see much diversity there? In Madison. Oh, you did? Well, sure. It's college town. Okay. Oh, I'm just, you know, just making sure because I feel like a lot of people, when they picture these idyllic, you know, parts of the country or these cities, they don't have the thought to think of, well, where are the black people going to get their hair done? Or where is this going to happen? Or where is that going to happen? But you say it's a diverse... Uh, and, and, you know, as, as the article says, there's 75% of the students are students mm-hmm. of color. So I guess there is some diversity there, huh? Rural might be a little different, but hey. Sure. 
Well, a huge shout out to Melanie DeJesus. I know we're connected on Facebook. I'll, I'm, I'll be sure to tag you in this just so you uh, make sure that you're uh, getting your flowers, getting your congratulations. We need more people. You know, as, as we were talking about in the previous accidental, none of us individually can topple over, you know, or maybe not necessarily topple over, you know, these big issues, these big global issues. But as individuals, we can create systems that start something that get a that gets the ball rolling and i think we've we've seen that from melanie de jesus here yeah. so huge huge shout out to her i understand that she is a violist so mm. i had to make sure that i um transition out of this with a little viola music so there is a violist out there named nokutula nigwayama uh, maybe that i'm not sure if that name sounds familiar to you i definitely remember the name uh, coming through my playlists when I was at NPR and, you know, putting her music in. I had the pleasure of being on a panel with Nokuthula uh, sometime last year, I think late last year. So really out here doing some incredible stuff um, in the talk space, but also in the viola space. She's a viola. So um, among uh, her many compositions is one called Sonoran Storm, a work for solo viola. So if you're a violist out there or the parent or a friend of a violist, be sure to uh, point them toward the music of Nokutula Nigwayama. Here's a little bit of her performing her own work called Sonoran Storm to get us to our last accidental. comes to my mind as I listen to that. It has this bright, sort of hopeful aesthetic to it. And someone like Nokuthula Nguyama, who, you know, is world-traveled and understands the complexities of world issues far beyond, you know, my ability to. I, mm. I, I think we have to consider that when we hear music like that. Um, you know, Sonoran, what, what it's called uh, Sonoran Storm. So that's like Southwest, you know, American Southwest, Sonoran mm-hmm. Desert. And yeah, hope. That was hope. A- uh, that was a nice little piece. Uh, why Why do you think the viola gets the grief that it does? Well, because historically the violin has been king and queen of the orchestra and of solo repertoire and the idea of a sonata when, you know, when, when a composer writes, you know, especially one of the old European composers writes, you know, sonata number such and such and whatever. If it's not a piano, solo piano sonata, it's certainly a sonata for violin and piano. So mm. the viola has been seen, I think, as sort of this ultimate second fiddle, you know, the second fiddle to the second fiddles. Jeez. And, it's, you know, it's always great to, you know, get the get the you know positive energy going around the yeah I, I never understood it i know so. you've i know you have uh you have a story about face planting with a with a viola joke from a, a famous yeah. violist yep who was that again that was pinka zuckerman oh we canceled him wait, wait a minute yeah, it was like uh it was you, like yeah you, you should have cussed him out <laughs> <laughs> this was in this would have been like in 2009 so we didn't know about the nonsense from pinky no yet. not yet they're calling but, him pinky but uh, <laughs> yeah i i had him on the phone for maybe 20 seconds and i said so have you heard any good viola jokes and i spent the next five minutes digging myself out of that hole 
See, you a good one because I'd have been like, I said what I said. <laughs> yeah. He knows the therapy anyway. Shout out to Nokuthula Nguyama, a non-problematic violist. <laughs> That's true. Uh, out here uh, writing music and, and bring, bringing the viola up to its rightful place. In a Sonoran way. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we have one more accidental here. So, Scott, since the last time we recorded, hip-hop turned 48 years old. I mean, first and foremost, we're, 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 we need to give a we need to just give some applause to hip hop. Okay, 48 years old. Think about if a person, or you know, think about a person 48 years old, and think about the impact that hip hop has had on global culture after 48 years. Mm-hmm. That's huge. If a person did what hip hop has done, we would have them up in the museums and, you know, all, all of the TED talks or, you know, whatever, the documentaries, you know. Sure. But hip hop has had to spend so many years in the in the shadows of racism and in the shadows of all this other sort of stuff, of not real music. And I remember one of my first band directors, shout out to him. You know, he, he meant well, but. Um, when I was a kid, when I was in seventh, eighth grade in Memphis, the uh, assistant conductor of the Memphis Symphony was a black man. Shout out to Vincent Danner. And, and he has a conversation of uh, his leaving the orchestra and racism and all that thing. Anyway, my band director's point was, and yeah, the, the symphony orchestra has a black conductor. And I bet you he isn't listening to a note of that hip hop. You know, that's problematic stuff that we have to get out of the music education system. That That is something I remember being said. And he means well. And, and I, I wouldn't I'm not going to say his name because I'm actually grateful to him and, mm. you know, and his wife, who was also my high school band director for many things. But little microaggressions like that really perpetuate the racism that surrounds music around our conception of classical music. So, you know, the impact that hip hop has had globally in less than 50 years. And as this art form that is, you know, purely American in form and and, in its evolution and all of those sorts of things, we have to consider that a form of classical music. We have these, you know, conversations just, you know, in passing, but, you know, for the folks who may not be as familiar with the rhetoric that we put forward on this podcast, you know, when we, when we talk about hip hop, I feel like we have to talk about hip hop as a form of classical music, certainly American classical music. When we, when we talk about food around the world, we affirm whatever is, you know, the meatloaf and the gravy or, you know, whatever we, the McDonald's, you know, whatever we do here in the United States as uniquely American, you know, despite what it is and despite our conceptions around the culinary tradition, we recognize what is American food, what is classic American food. We have to do the same thing in, in all, you know, of our fields, but certainly music. Hip hop is a classic genre of music in the United States. And we have to start really conceptualizing it and platforming it as such. Um, Didn't you say that you recently found a statistic that hip hop is the is the dominant form of music in the United States, like as far as popularity and and sales and such? Yeah, I mean, let's let's do a little um, a little live research i didn't mean to put you on the spot no it's fine top genre of 
music. Let's just, let's just type that into Google here. And what does it say right there at the top? Hip hop. What does it say right next to it? R&B. Okay. So we also have, of course, here, heavy metal. Oh, we're back to black music. Soul. Up, up under that, it says rock music that we that we all know, you know, is, is, is based off those American black aesthetics. We're getting into country, you know, shout out to Rissy Palmer. We've already had that conversation. We get into blues. It says classical music here. Y'all not going to put classical in front of a pop music i mean let's look at just how be far real. down this falling though <laughs> but then we have jazz another you know a very obvious form of american classical music anyway mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to um get us off track here but i just you know i feel like every now and again we just need to return to that basic point when we talk about the phrase classical music we need to um, put classical music in the context of culture and for american history and american people hip-hop is one of those things so with all of that said I'm reading here from InsideHigherEd.com. The headline says, Colleges and Universities Need More Rappers. Let me uh, read a little bit from here. When Princeton University's Classics program recently decided it will no longer require Greek or Latin for admission, some people expressed dismay at the change, feeling that the university's attempt to attract a more diverse student body would make the program less rigorous and diminish the value of the degree. We can't even, we, I, I can't even get past the first sentence without some issues. So, so, you know, we see how attempts and conversations at diversity are often contextualized as lowering the standard or, 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 or something being less than, I feel like hip hop has been at the, at the brunt of that for so long. I'm going to read a little bit more of this. Uh, This comes from um, one of the students there. It says, After I submitted my dissertation as a rap album and digital archive titled Owning My Masters, The Rhetorics of Rhymes and Revolutions, many people asked what kinds of convincing I needed to do to get the university to accept it. I recall one of my classmates mentioning that it was unfair that they were stuck writing papers when all I had to do was write a rap song. Another told me that their partner had to learn another language just to read the mandatory text. Okay, so this is my thing. When it comes to learning different languages y'all sit up here and act like you can't understand it anyway so it sounds like that's another language that y'all need to learn is that wrong scott (laughs) (laughs) do do you think i'm gonna refuse (laughs) (laughs) i i equate those two things when we try to talk about oh it's it's so uh much more intelligent to have to go learn greek or latin or to do x y and z well y'all don't speak this language y'all don't speak the language of hip hop hip hop so that's a language y'all need to go learn and you know again as we uh celebrate as we get closer and closer to the 50th birthday of hip hop you know 50 years since somebody in the bronx said hey listen to this I think we have to have more of these conversations and consider what it means for the Princetons, for the Harvards, for the MITs to consider hip hop, hip hop culture, the language of hip hop and everything surrounding it as equal to all of these so-called classics. I love that the conversation is happening and I hope more of it can um, can can come about. Well, this shows you how green I am. I didn't know that Latin was a requirement to get into Princeton. <laughs> it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't be. I mean, what does Latin? Latin has a lot to do with a lot of people's professions, but not everyone's, right? Yeah. So, what colleges do I do I go to if I know Sanskrit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> there's a school out there somewhere, right? <laughs> but you know, again, we're talking about things when we talk about Sanskrit and hieroglyphics that are classic parts 
of cultures from other spots in the world. Hip hop is a classic part of our tradition, and we have to we we you know we, we have to consider it as such. I'll I'll post that opinion essay in the description of this. So you know I brought this up again. You know when we're talking about the birthday of hip hop and re uh, contextualizing the phrase classical music, I think one day one day we will get to the point where we're really giving hip hop the respect it deserves. I mean, think about Scott, the people that it lifted out of nothing or next to nothing. And I, I know we're talking about anti-capitalism and, and, and all that sort of thing. And you have to admit that there, there aren't as many rags to riches, so-called rags to riches stories, at least not to the front um, as there are in hip hop. I'm sure there's a lot of rags to riches stories and uh, in country. Maybe there's somebody who was playing the piano in their shack and growing up and, and wound up in front of the Met and they have all this and X, Y, and Z. Hip hop is the story of that. That is a foundational part of hip hop, that collaboration, that come up. And is that not the, you know, some of the outlines of the so-called American dream? So, well, you know. yeah. And, and part of that being, you know, the, the grit or the exceptionalism or whatever, because when you say rags to riches, that makes me think in the, in the theater world of the concept of the overnight success mm, and okay. the, an overnight success takes 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so these rags to riches, whoever's you describe as a rags to riches story, they were probably in the rags area for a long time. Oh, of course. You know, doing it. Of course. And just because they all of a sudden show up doesn't mean that it was literally overnight. They've been working. Yeah. I think to that, and I'm, I'm going to talk about Biggie, the notorious B.I.G. in the second movement, uh, so many of these folks... We lost them so early. You know, we forget that other than uh, that Biggie, the notorious B.I.G., he was in his early 20s. Tupac was in his early 20s, you know, a decade younger than me even. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what they managed to do with the tool of hip hop with such little time has to be respected. And the, so if, if that story is respected, we have to celebrate and respect the means by which that happened, which was hip hop culture and, and, and hip hop music. Testify. <laughs> uh, if you had to tell someone and you know you uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to keep my the keep my age jokes away but the, the point I want to make is that when a lot of this hip-hop that I celebrate that many folks in my generation celebrate you were there for it you know you were DJing the parties you it was on the radio you know mm -hmm. x x y and z if you had to suggest a place for someone to start where would you point them to? Is there an artist or an era as far as getting a start into hip hop and really understanding, you know, what, what that genre is from your perspective as someone who saw a lot of it? Yeah. You know, um, and now the names are escaping me, of course, because uh, you mentioned age and then all of a sudden I was thinking about <laughs> it. Uh, you know, you're easy. -E, yeah. Um, yeah. Eric uh, B. Rock. Right, yeah. Eric B. and Rock Kim. Um, uh, let's go back to Public Enemy, um, NWA. So all of um, the, all of all of those folks, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, but you know, when when I started really paying attention to it and feeling like I could take part in it, you know, uh, it, it was the West Coast folks like um, like Snoop, 
Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and, Snoop, uh, and Snoop is probably the, the most famous rapper. Sure. Like we, we have that, you know, hip hop likes to have that conversation a lot. Is, is there a rapper more famous than Snoop? Is there a rapper other than Snoop that your dad knows the name <laughs> of? You know, I'm not even sure my dad knows Snoop, but OK, thanks for. Thanks for thinking that he he's would heard know of, that. He's heard of Snoop Dogg. He's heard of Snoop Dogg. Snoopy Dogg. Yep. <laughs> anyway, shout out to hip hop. Well, the, uh, the, the the place where I've heard a lot of folks say is a great place to start is actually with Wu-Tang. So I've been paying attention and listening back to some Wu-Tang. A, a few weeks ago, I bought um, Enter the Wu-Tang vinyl just to go through and listen to the album, you know, as as it was printed and, and hear what they're saying. Um, so... You know, to that, I think we're going to transition into this second movement with a little bit of Wu-Tang. Now, of course, we're talking about hip-hop being a classic form of music, American classical music. So much of this music, so much of hip-hop music, not only samples music that's also classical to American culture, you know, the blues and and the funk and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. It has instrumental samples that could be used to help teach music that can be a part of the pedagogy. So um, I think we talked about it actually as it related to Jack and for Keys by uh, the Phantom and the Ill Harmonic maybe Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. But, you know, the the Wu-Tang track that I think a lot of people know that has one of those really iconic piano lines is uh, one called Cream. Do you remember what Cream stands for? You told me, but I forgot Cash rules everything around me you know back to that capitalism right Mm. cash does rule everything around us doesn't it anyway here's a little bit of cream by wu-tang to get us into our second movement This one and that one, pulling out gats for fun. But it was just a dream for the team who was a fiend. Started smoking wools at 16. And running up in gates and doing it by high stakes. Making my way on fire skates. No question, I was speed for cracks and weed. The combination made my eyes bleed. No question, I would flow off and try to get the dough off. Sticking up white boys on board. I think the nuance and the conversation surrounding hip-hop, especially in these past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, has definitely gone beyond, you know, being centered around drugs and hoes and all that sort of thing. But I think one of the important things about hip-hop is that listening to this earlier hip-hop, early and earlier hip-hop, it lays out the fact that so many of these folks didn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. The only way to do anything was to sell some drugs or to rob someone, Mm -hmm. not because black folks, folks from this culture are less than or did something wrong. That's the way the system was built. So they came up the way they could. Mm. Anyway. Shout out to hip hop. What yeah. you got for? Uh, so we're sorry, we're in our second movement here. <laughs> Take I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm in the. I'm, I'm getting excited here in the second movement where we are taking the second ending. We take music that we have been repeating all week and take the second ending to talk a little bit about why we've been repeating it, why it's important to us, and uh, why you should listen to it. So how about you go first? What do you have for a second ending this week, Scott? You mentioned sampling. Uh, just a few moments ago, um, the way that it's used in hip hop. And I don't think that it would be right if we had this little birthday celebration and we didn't talk about the Amen break. Sure, sure. Um, the Amen break is five seconds worth of uh, a, a, a drum break in the middle of Amen Brother by the Winstons. It came out in 1969. And over the years, This five seconds has been sampled thousands of times. Let's take a listen. Through loads of hip hop tracks. Yep, go ahead. 
That's it. So we just have that, and yep. it loops. That that loop, right? Now, what they uh, what hip hop artists would start to do with that? Uh, they would have two records on their turntable, and have one of them lined up over here. Play that five seconds while they got the other one lined up. Now you've got uh, uh, the DJ making a loop. Yeah, essentially, right? Yeah. So back when you uh, had to an, do that manually, an analog loop, right? <laughs> and um, as technology advanced. Uh, and and sampling got better. They were able to start slicing and dicing it and and um, changing the speed um, and changing the order of the drum hits. And um, it starts to grow as a whole sound within itself. You know, yeah. so uh, straight out of Compton, N.W.A. used it. There's a there's a, a Public Enemy and Bring the Noise. They used it. Eric B. and Rakim. You know, see, you see what I'm yeah. getting at. There's yeah. loads and loads and loads of it, yeah. right? But then it gets across the pond, right? So over in England, there is this new, uh, you know, uh, rave is going on in the uh, mid '90s, right? Mm-hmm. And out comes this sound known as drum and bass, which is the amen break, which has been swapped up, chopped, hacked, and put together in a different order, right? Yeah. There is a band called The Prodigy that I, I think their entire catalog <laughs> is owed to the amen break. Look at look at black music and black culture even getting over there to England. The right. originators so, of the colonizers and and the appropriators and it's and we flipped it around. Here they are, you know, even over there in England, being able to still create art that is based on that black sound and this black history. From know? the spiritual, through the R and B, through hip hop, on into drum and bass, jungle, you know. Uh, 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 there's new rave, I think was another. Sure. So but, what? So what's the prodigy tune that you know? Oh man, that, See, that you listen to that. It's called Minefields, and when when this album came out in 1997, I was already playing the role of the angry young man because of you know the death of my mother and yeah. and all these things that I were were not being dealt with properly. Sure. I was pissed at about everything. Wearing black t-shirts and, and let well, me you, tell you, you still are. I but. still do. <laughs> right. And now but going around the lake with radar and listening to the prodigy, I found myself able to sort of flesh out uh some of this angst that had built up. Experience you know, some of you know, that feeling. Right. And so and I went right back to the way that I was in 1997, driving fast acting a fool, uh, being dangerous. And that's one of the lines that comes through in Minefields. One of the few lines in the track is, this is dangerous. The thing about... I think I was using The Matrix too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I, the, the thing about Prodigy is it's all electronic, but you look at the band and you'd think you were at a punk show. Yeah. There's this merging there of even of styles that, oh man, I just felt it. It felt af- like afterward, I felt like I was back from the club and smelling and, like cigarettes, smelling like cigarettes, <laughs> cigarettes, and, and regret. <laughs> it but took you back. Yeah. It did. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just saying, let's put some respect on the Amen Break and Gregory C. Coleman, G.C. Coleman, who was the drummer for the Winstons, who died not getting any money 
from mm. all the uses of the Amen Brick. Amen. If there are any other, uh, are there any other prodigy tunes that you would uh, you would try to turn people on to or throw at them? Firestarter. Firestarter. Yep. So they just took the Amen break and created a, a whole catalog. What did I say? <laughs> Their whole and and that all started. I think it was uh, when Prodigy got a hold of that. It was 1991 with a piece called "Everybody Is in the Place." Mm. And they just ran and, with it, okay. And they've got a career out of it, okay. Well, shout out to the black people who made that career of theirs possible. Yep. Period. Period. <laughs> all right. Well, the way that I wanted, uh, you know, when, when I'm thinking about the uh, birthday of hip hop and, and hip hop history, we already talked about Snoop as probably the most famous of all rappers, just name recognition and, and that sort of thing. Well, when we talk about the, you know, proverbial Mozarts and Haydn's of hip hop, there's certain people that, you know, whose names you have to bring up. Of, co- of course, these days we talk about Hove, you know, Jay-Z is the greatest of all time. That's sort of just the un- understood truth about hip hop. When we look at trajectory, longevity, I think I've even mentioned it on this podcast on 9-11 in New York City. He sold something like 30,000 records, 30,000 CDs. So the Twin Towers were fucked up in New York City. And some, you know, and tens of thousands of people went to a store because this was still 2001. You know, it's yeah. not like they went to a store and bought a Jay-Z, right? They bought the blueprint, you know, mm. so that's very significant. So yeah. anyway, so shout out to Hove. And of course, you know, getting to be the husband of Beyonce, you know, that's just not something anybody can do. First you gentleman. Know, that you, you have to be the greatest of all time to be married to Beyonce, period. Mm. She, she she did an interview in Harper's Bazaar that I thought about talking about this week, but we'll, I'll probably bring, bring it up next week because a Beyonce interview is very rare. So that is news anyway. So, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that another, uh, another time, but okay. So Hove, um, in the most contemporary, in the same way that folks talk about Michael Jordan or LeBron James, I feel like a lot of it is Hove or Drake. You know, so so Drake is Drake is way up there. We have to say his name when we talk about hip hop. You already said names um, Eric B and Rakim and and Easy E and those folks. Run DMC. Run DMC. The other names that I think you know obviously we have to say are Tupac and. The notorious B.I.G. So sure. Biggie was someone who whose cultural impact was was so far beyond hip hop. And again, in such a short amount of time, he passed away in his 20s. He was killed in his 20s. You have to just acknowledge that in itself. But when you listen to the music itself and uh, the flow that he had and that he created, I mean, there, there was no other. Even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was often compared. Her legacy was often compared with uh, with Biggie. You know, they're both from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. There, I, I think there was a, a, a series on CNN that actually sampled some of Biggie's music in her special, the the Notorious RBG. RBG. Yeah. You know, so so Biggie is someone whose name you have to say and you have to honor when you're talking about hip hop. Certainly, as a uh, American form of classical music. So the album of his uh, that I've been going back and listening to is the 1994 release ready to die i mean on this album you have so many stories you have biggie talking about um the hard life growing up and 
having to um, having again to rob and, and to do different things on this album. He has a tune that I think everybody needs to listen to called Suicidal Thoughts that really humanizes these folks from hip hop. There's so many white folks who just see wild animals when they listen to hip hop. Yeah. But these are people with real feelings and real lives and real emotions, you know, even mental health being a part of that conversation. You know, so much music on that album. The one I wanted to uh, share a bit of here today is called Things Done Changed. When we talk about all of the world tragedies and everything that can have our emotions and our feelings and our realities and upheaval, that applies to these folks up here in New York that were on the ground level of hip hop. And um, Biggie's third verse off third verse off of this album, Things Done Changed, is one in particular that I've been returning to. So I want to just listen to a little bit of that here. Jump shot, shit. It's hard being young from the slums, eating five-cent gums, not knowing where your meal's coming from. And now the shit's getting crazier and major. Kids younger than me, they got the sky grand pages. Going out of town, blowing up. Six months later, all the dead bodies showing up. It made me want to grab the nine and the shoddy. But I gotta go identify the body. Damn, what happened to the summertime cookouts? Every time I turn around, a nigga getting took out. Shit, my mama got cancer in her breast. Don't ask me why I'm motherfucking stressed. Things done change. Don't ask me why I'm motherfucking stressed. You know, real people going through real shit and still managing to make a life and do something with this music, this classical music that folks weren't respecting to to some extent, still not respecting, called hip hop. That verse in particular has so much in it. He's talking about you. Uh, what did he say? You slinging crack rocks or you got a wicked jump shot. You know, I think about my trajectory as a musician, the bassoon, as my parents saw as a way out or way above. And, you know, how there's so many more options for us that weren't there for folks like that, you know, still dealing with, um, uh, you know, family members, his mother with breast cancer, you know, still yeah. dealing with, well, am I going to go rob this person or do I need to go, uh, but I actually need to go identify the body of this homie who was shot. So a, a lot of stuff going on, real American stories and real American narratives enshrined in this classic form of music. Shout out to Biggie. We we have to say his name more. And I know in in the world of hip hop, you know, he's way up there. There are still even murals. You know, it's it's a very common uh, image of Biggie with the crown, sure. you know, tipped to the side and, and and all that sort of thing. So, you know, it's it's really incredible. And then when you top that with the uh, Western classical samples, you know, we heard the harp glissandos in there. We heard the that string gonna... pads. I mean, yeah. incredible music. I, I don't know what it samples before you ask me, but that's what I was going to ask if. <laughs> the hook was a sample or if it was original and i know that this will make sparks fly but i was paying more attention to the the west coast well that would that was a narrative wasn't it the east coast versus the west coast yeah. and i mean and i don't know where all that started or anything but uh, it just seemed like the west coast rappers were more prevalent in the circles that i was near go listen to some biggie i i encourage you to go listen to some biggie i didn't want to put the i almost thought about putting this uh the tune suicidal thoughts in because i think it's a very poignant example of hip-hop verse that really speaks to mental health but um you should go look that up okay go, i was gonna go take a listen i was going to ask if what track you would point the uninitiated to yeah and well, that, is that one i mean uh, of course we you know we can talk about big papa and and, and all those famous uh biggie tracks but yeah the the, the deep tracks are, are good i mean i guess my really you know at the end of the day my suggestion would be to go look up ready to die the album and just listen to the album listen to you know this you know uh 45 to 50 minute album and really get a taste of 
you know, where hip hop started as far as really becoming this powerful thing that was mm. impacting folks everywhere. The other interesting thing, you know, is that these days when you cut on a song by the Migos and all these folks, it'll be uh, two, two and a half minutes. Back then, these were full length songs. Right. You were talking five, sometimes six minutes. Yeah. You know, rappers putting three, sometimes four verses on a track. So, you know, the the, the way that the genre has evolved is is a conversation. People like to talk about mumble rap and, and all that sort of thing. But there is no one out there in the world of hip hop and even beyond who can ever begin to deny the impact on global music and the American classical tradition of hip hop in the way that Biggie did. So honor, honor and shout out to him and happy birthday to hip hop. I can't wait until 50 years. I'll have to go up. You know, there's a hip hop museum up in, in New York now and mm, it's, nice. it's, it's, it's all doing some great things. All right. Well, as we get into the uh, third movement here, as I mentioned earlier, Brittany McNeil returns. If you didn't catch last week's opus, Brittany McNeil is a, a musician, a singer and a journalist who is really embedded in the work of anti racism and changing classical music, so-called classical music, into something that speaks to more of us. Uh, this week in Part B of the interview, we talk about the idea of hard work, how it's not a lack of hard work that keeps certain people out, but it's the system itself. We talk about the idea of divesting from whiteness and maybe how there are some people who um aren't uh, bound by uh, the idea of divestment being a bad thing, how uh, on the other side of the argument, you know, there are certain things that black musicians are owed. So divesting from American culture and white culture and building our own complete things doesn't have to be the way forward for um, everyone. And uh, we start out the conversation actually with Brittany uh, talking about her path and her road, how she got to this intersection of journalism and opera. So I'm really excited to share part B of this. I always, Scott, speak of Drake as my what? Favorite male, male rapper. rapper. Um, when someone asks me who my favorite rapper is, I can't help but to say Nicki because Nicki got me back into hip hop. So, you know, when I would turned, you know, 19, 20 years old, I'm in music school. I'm starting to get serious about bassoon. I kind of put my head down and dedicated all of my life and all of my time to that. Around, I don't know, 2010, 2011, I'm in grad school and I'm putting my head back up. I'm looking at the rest of the world like all classical musicians need to. And I hear new sounds. I hear this woman named Nicki Minaj and I'm learning more of her music and, you know, just really getting into, you know, that, uh, woman perspective on you know all of these problematic topics that are in hip-hop was really my entry back in I, I often talk about Queen Latifah some of my earliest memories as a child were bringing me back in was Nicki Minaj so you know I, I know a lot of people have a lot of opinions on a lot of rappers but when mm -hmm. it comes to me personally I will always honor and take my hat off to the legacy and the repertoire of Nicki Minaj so to get us into the third movement here my conversation with Brittany McNeil I wanted to play a little bit of a tune of hers called bed of lies it features Skylar gray and it really you know again speaks to the emotions and the humanity behind the people who made this genre possible so here's a little bit of bed of lies by Nicki minaj and here's my conversation with britney mcneil you could never make eye contact everything you got was based off of my contact 
You a fraud, but I'ma remain icon stat. Balenciaga's on my boots with a python strap. You was caught up in the rush and you was caught up in the thrill of it. You was with me way before I hit the quarter million it. Put you in the crib and you ain't never pay a bill in it. I was killing it, man, you got me popping pills in it. I told baby, hit you. I said this nigga bugging, cause I was doing it for- When I just, when I graduated high school, you know, I thought I was going to go to college and major in, of all things, Hispanic studies. I wanted to, I wanted to major in Spanish. And to me, that was like, I'm going to, I want to be bilingual. I want to learn this language. I want to travel to different countries. Like, I don't even know exactly. I don't even remember, I should say exactly what that idea was or, or even how serious I was about it. But when I got to college and, you know, you started gen ed and all of that, um, I had no intention to major in music. I do know that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I ended up majoring in communication, of course. Right. And so I end up majoring in journalism. I get, I get about halfway into the program and here I am in the music building, uh, in master classes, right? And I'm the only person who's not a music major in master classes. Um, back then, I think I was mostly going to like jazz events and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, eventually it was like, okay, this must be where I need to be. I joined the university choir. I met some amazing people, um, some who were music majors and some who weren't. And here we go again to Black folk lifting you up. They were like, come on here. Like, we're going to study theory. We're going to prepare you for this entrance, entrance exam. I went and I found a, a teacher. There was only one Black voice faculty member um, at my school. And uh, I wholeheartedly believe that I was sent to her because she was Black and for no other reason. Um, but you know what? It worked in my favor. Um, and, you know, ended up taking lessons with a graduate student, um, and ended up in that teacher studio. I, I auditioned for the School of Music. My intention was to major in musical theater. Um, and at my school, you had the option of doing that through the School of Theater and Dance or through the School of Music. And because my background had always mostly been singing, um, I mean, I grew up singing, so I guess I left that out. Like I grew up singing, I sang in church, you know, from the time I was three years old, yeah. um, standing on chairs, you know, so I could be seen in the church saying speeches, doing the plays, all of that stuff. You know, I did choir in school. I did theater productions in school, did show choir, all of that. But I didn't intend to pursue it professionally. But, you know, sometimes you just got to go where you're drawn. And so um, I auditioned for the School of Music. I got in because I did it through the School of Music. There were three mandatory semesters of classical training. You had to take classical lessons. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I had this black teacher and who introduced me to African-American art song and classical arrangements of spirituals, as well as, you know, um, this Western. The Schubert know, and all and, that. And all, and all of it that, that we've been talking about today. And it just fit. It just fit. I didn't go out of my way to to sing classical music or to find, you know, this. It was, it just fit. It was what it was. I mean, I had done choir before, right? So it's not like I was not familiar at all with yeah. classical music. Um, but that's where it was for me. So I did, I, I took a semester, like, I'm gonna be a jazz major. And I went over there and then, you know, and I saw people who like could really sing jazz. And I was like, no, nah, this is, mm -mm, this is <laughs> thank you. It's been real. So I went right on back where I belong. And, um, 
And, you know, and I never made it to theater. I've actually, it's full circle because here I am back here now. Like I, I did my debut at Arena Stage um, the year before the pandemic. And so I've been doing some musical theater and I've been getting some calls for musical theater recently. But um, it's, you know, so I graduated with my degree in journalism and then I graduated with my degree in music. And then I ended up coming to moving to Baltimore so I could go to grad school and um, and then went to school again. Yeah, I've been a student my whole life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, not the plan, but things work how they work. And um, it's been a journey. Like, so I've, I've recently, um, I've been writing, I've been doing some freelance stuff, you know, whatever. And then um, recently started writing about music, you know, specifically. And um, you make a life, you know, the path is like not always exactly what you envision. Um, to speak to to rather racism exists in this field, I will say, like as a black singer, it has been hard for me, um, having been placed in boxes this entire time, like these spaces where people think you have to be. And I understand that all people face that, but it is a different journey and a different battle um for black singers right yeah um it's been the weirdest thing throughout my entire career i mean my whole career has been like you should be singing this no you should be singing that you know that's a part of the reason i ended up going back to school when i went to a conservatory because i was like let me go in here so that i can settle into a place where nobody knows me and i can have you know new ears hear me and it became the same uh conversation and i will tell you um, and I, or your audience, like I, I ended up um, having a conversation with Denise Graves, who I absolutely adore. And one day um, when I was at Peabody and she said uh, we were in an opera coaching and she said, you know what, you are allowing people to take a positive thing and turn it into a negative. You are a versatile singer. That is not a bad thing. You can sing whatever you want. That is not a bad thing. And and I needed that, you know, and I don't even know if it was that I that I didn't know it, but I just needed somebody to say it. And that and I'm not going to pretend like she said it and my whole life changed. No, it wasn't that like it's still Mm -hmm. been a gradual shifting. Right. Because in the reality is a lot of people say you can sing whatever you want. But when you are in this world, it doesn't really work that way, especially when you're black. And people have ideas about what you're supposed to sound like and what you're supposed to sing. And if you're a mezzo and you don't sound like Denise Graves and they don't have a place for you. And if you're a soprano, then you need to sound like Leontine Price or you know what I'm saying? And they Mm -hmm. want to push you into these ideas of what they think blackness is supposed to be in this art form. And often we are so versatile that we can do like so many different things and we can make so many different sounds authentically and beautifully. And instead of being recognized for that, um, instead of saying you can do all of these things. People are constantly saying you can't. So that has been a constant battle. I'm so grateful for my current teacher slash therapist um, who walks <laughs> me through and holds my hand and allows me to um, come for, for yes, vocal training and to continue to polish um, the voice and the repertoire, but who also allows me to come for validation, who also says to me, you have time, who also says to me, your journey is what it is and was what it was like, let that be that, right? Um, And that's a whole different conversation than what we're having here. But you know, I feel like it's such an important conversation, first of all, for millennials who have just walked through a very difficult road um, in young adulthood. Um, And 
for Black millennials especially, um, because the world that we we came into adulthood in um, was just, <laughs> we were the first generation to not even be able to pretend we had access to the American dream. Right. And when you're Black on top of that, uh, when you're Black and female on top of that, if you're mm-hmm. Black and female and gay on top of that, you know, that it just gets harder and harder and harder. And so we need those reminders that you have time, you don't have to rush, there is a path for you. And, and all of that can sometimes seem like, you know, cliche or whatever, but I, I want Black people especially to like really sit with that, even as we talk about doing the work in this industry that we're so often called to do for free, with this labor, this emotional labor that we're often called to give for free, that we often don't see the fruits of, like always go back and sit with yourself and, and, and you know, process those feelings and those emotions and that fear because a lot of folks are sitting with that fear of like, it's too late. I don't have time. I mean, we're talking about folks in their like, you know, twenties and thirties. We're not even talking about folks necessarily in their forties and fifties, which, you know, they should also be having that conversation. Right. But when we're looking at millennials, um, especially older millennials, like it's just, it's a difficult thing. And so my path has been so broad and so wide, but, you know, having that conversation with Denise Graves was so important for me because I needed to own that. Right. I had never really, I knew it. And, and I talked about it among friends and, and, and colleagues, right. We would say all the time, like, you know, black people are so versatile. Black people are so talented. Like we would say these things. I don't know how often we would say these things and really truly be talking about ourselves, like as individuals. So I had to own that. I am talented. I am versatile. I have worked hard for this thing. I deserve this. I am allowing other people's perceptions to make my path blurry. I needed to own that. And it didn't happen overnight. Like it is, it is a reckoning. It is, it is a path, but like, I'm so sorry. Like, this is not what you asked me about, but, but I just see so many (laughs) black singers, like having this struggle Um, And like at the time I was like, they, you know, I was a mezzo at the time and I've since transitioned, but um, I mean, I could still sing mezzo repertoire if I wanted to. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was easier to just say, you know what, I can do these things and people like these things. So this is what I'm going to do. But being a mezzo, it was so funny because like when people would talk to me about repertoire, it was like in their minds, they could not even conceive of this idea of a mezzo singing like a black mezzo singing like carabino or something like that right like why doesn't marilyn horn uh or joyce dinanato why do these people not come to mind when i'm talking to you about repertoire like you know what i'm saying and and it was like not even being able to imagine um me singing this repertoire It, it was the craziest thing and like when I would even pinpoint that folk would even have to sit with it for a minute to, you know, or, or even like struggle to accept it. And I'm like, I'm not crazy. Like also not allowing this industry to gaslight you and Mm -hmm. and say like, I'm not crazy. I know like what is happening in front of me. I know the things I can sing well. And I know, you know, I know what I've been told by teachers and then, you know, someone else just doesn't, is not able to see you in a certain way. 
Um, all of those things are real. So when a what was that lady's name? Heather McDonald. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when a Heather writes an article to tell us that these things don't exist, that's gaslighting. Since you're not yeah. gonna gaslight me, you're not gonna. You cannot undermine my lived experiences. You don't get to do that. I don't allow you to do that. You don't have that power, right? You don't have that power. I don't. I don't give you that. I don't honor that. So I think people, it's fair for folks to say, you know what, Garrett, we um, we don't have to give folks like that attention in the sense of we don't have to honor her words. That's what we don't have to do. Sure. What we do have to do is say, no, this is not wrong. This is not right. I'm sorry. What we What we get to do, not even just have to do, but what we get to do is say, I don't have to see both sides. Both yeah. sides are not always worthy you know, of uh, uh, they're not always worth the same thing. They're not always valuable. Both sides, that that's gaslighting. That is, I, it's funny because, you know, that word has become such a cliche mm-hmm, kind of trope, word, yeah. you know, uh, uh, but, but I think the reason is because it happens so much and folk didn't know how to name it before. And now we mm-hmm. know how to name it. We know yeah. what to call it. And so, you know, for me in my path, it's, it's a matter of like being able to acknowledge, um, who I am. I've been through traumatic experiences in this field. I've been through hurtful things in this field. Um, I'm thankful now to have a teacher that I trust and who believes in me and who is like, the world is yours, what you want, you know, it's, it's a matter of you going to get it. Like, you know, not, not saying to me that there aren't barriers, but saying to me, you are right. You yeah. can. And even as an adult, um, when we're musicians, we're so vulnerable all the time. When we're artists, we're so vulnerable all the time. Like you need those people. So the path for me, um, when I talk about when I talk about doing the work of equity and justice, like that's real to me. And I'm still I'm still struggling with that. Like that's a daily struggle for me to realize that the work is for me. It's mm-hmm. not just for other people. It's not just for the generations to come. It is for me and it is for me now. I have a friend who um, has been saying that so much recently. We are doing this work for us too. We deserve to benefit from this work. And so um, that is, you know, I didn't mean for this to be like a long inspirational, <laughs> but it, it is so hard, you know, and Black singers deserve that validation. Um, it goes back to what we were saying before. Do not let people tell you that you just didn't work hard enough. No, right. there are real obstacles and real barriers. And yes, we got to work like, of course we do. But sometimes you're not working because you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're tired. You worked 40 hours a week or you're in school taking 21 credit hours and working 20 hours at a job because you don't have patrons. You don't have family members who necessarily can cover these things. This field is expensive. You know, Um, jobs don't always gigs don't always pay what they should. People are trying to get by. And so the idea that black folks aren't working hard enough when the reality is we know the reality is that we're working 10 times harder. Come on. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you, you, you covered a lot of ground there. I'm definitely going to, um, include, uh, some of your work in the description of this. I took a look at your, uh, fat phobia article today. So thank you for that. I'm going to be sure to uh, share uh, that with folks, but uh, the last thing that I uh, wanted you to cover, I, I couldn't have you on and, and not, you know, ask you despite all of the issues, you know, that you name and that we know exist, I understand that you believe complete divestment isn't the way forward. So why is, you know, turning our back completely on the system, not the answer? And, and what do you see as, you know, a better way forward? So let me be clear that when you say that I don't believe that divestment is the way forward, that is not me validating this system or this industry. Right. Not at all, right. right. And yeah. so anybody who is familiar with my work or my words knows that, but I want to um, say that clearly. I think that, first of all, let me say, um, when people say they're going to work within the system to do a thing, I just often find that so dishonest. Um, so I will say that. Hmm. When, when people talk about divestment, it doesn't bother me. I'm not against divestment. I don't think that's how I would say it. It doesn't bother me. I'll tell you why I don't believe it has to be the only option in just a second. But but I understand why people talk about divestment, right? Because a lot of times when folks talk about working within the system, what they're really saying is, I don't want to blow this thing up because it's giving me what I need. Mm -hmm. And I know mm -hmm. I see all those other folks who aren't getting what they need and what they deserve, but I'm getting what I need. So like, do I have to blow this thing up? Do I have to be an activist? Do I have to do this work? Is it really on me? I mean... I don't even really engage in those conversations too much anymore because when when folks are asking those questions to me you're answering those questions when you when you, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're you're telling me something about yourself when you ask those questions right I am never going to ask is it my responsibility to fight for black people I don't have to ask that I don't go to sleep you know thinking about that I don't wake up thinking about it I don't have to ask of course it is mm -hmm. that is my path I choose it I understand everybody doesn't and doesn't have to but you know I just feel like you're telling me something about yourself when you have to wrestle with it. I ain't, I ain't ever. And you see, like, I get comfortable and I, I joke. <laughs> I mean, I seriously say like, you got to pay me to code switch. Cause I just, I'm over, <laughs> but I ain't ever, I ever gonna be in a position where I feel like it's a burden to care for black people. Yeah, it is a burden to fight white supremacy because that that should not be my load to bear. Right. Um, but it ain't a burden to care for my folk like ever. And so even as a person who acknowledges and recognizes um, the boundaries that I face that I should not have had to and the struggles that I face that I should not have had to. Um, I also recognize the privileges that I that I have and these are not necessarily inherent. Um, some of them are like, like, like being what some people would call book smart, you know, intelligent, you know, um, that's, that's inherent privilege, right? That's just something sometimes you just born with, or you aren't like the ability. Um, I, I have an ability to see things and to, 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 work through things, to think through things. Some of that I learned in school and things like that, but a lot of that is just who I've always been. Like those, some folk, you know, are going to struggle for a C, some folk are going to breeze through to an A. Like that, those yeah. kinds of things, maybe, you know, those are privileges. But like going to college, 
being college educated, that is a privilege, but it's not a privilege in the sense of like, when we talk about systems and, and things like that, that is something I had to work my ass off for. But then again, like, uh, I'm in a position, I grew up in a country where I had access that some people don't have. Like, you know what I'm saying? There are always yeah. all those kinds of things, right? So for me, because I have certain privileges, because I have the ability of the ability to to cut through things and articulate, people often say like, "You say things that I want to say, and I couldn't say them the way you did." And I and I'm glad you said it for me. Like I recognize that as a gift. I recognize that as a privilege, but also a privilege in the sense that like it's a privilege for me to be able to do it. Yeah. And so, um, in that sense, like. I think people are often being dishonest when they talk about trying to fight from the inside. I don't think the goal is so much. It's not that necessarily they don't want to, but I don't think that's really the goal. The goal really is to preserve what you have, right? Mm -hmm. And to not make too much noise, to not make too many people angry so that you get blacklisted. But (laughs) the crazy thing about that is, is those people benefit from the work that folks like us do right right let's be real and i and i said this recently i believe on social media there are so many there are people who will get credit there are people who will not risk anything but because they are seen but because they have platforms they will be the spokes people uh for all of us and they will get the credit for the work that is done by the folk who risk everything And so when you talk about divestment, not when I think about divestment, I don't even always think about it just in terms of music. It's a bigger picture to me when I think about like America. And I'm always thinking, why should I have to give up what I built? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a very important point. We built this. It's all built on the back of our ancestors. That's not some like super me trying to be deep. Like that's not what that is. It's just a fact. Yeah, That is history. America became a superpower because of slavery, period. It's when I was at Peabody and I, um, I remember like, (laughs) it's so crazy. When you start to look at some of these corporations, even today, if you start to go back down through the history um, and look at the names of these corporations then family names on these corporations, some names that you don't even associate with people, right? Because they've been associated with corporations for so long. Go ahead and trace that stuff back to slavery. You can do it. It's not hard. Yep. You can do it. It's not hard. And there are so many institutions in Baltimore, like Peabody and and a number of the museums and different things where these were men, you know, who put their names on these institutions. But a a lot of their fortune was built from slavery. Mm -hmm. And that didn't end when slavery ended. Right. It's been happening. You know, even these Ivy League institutions, there are entire books written about it, you know, like all of this stuff comes from the labor of black people. And I want to say, like, I want to emphasize that we're not just talking, even though slavery was not very long ago, like it absolutely was not very long ago. Like my grandmother is still living. She was born in 1938. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's stop pretending um, that, that 
these things were so long ago. We're not that many generations removed even from slavery. But when we talk about the building of wealth in America by, by Black people specifically, um, or the building of institutions in America by Black people specifically, it doesn't end with slavery. You know, the exploitation of of poor people, the the labor, even to this day, that goes into building wealth, the labor that folk driving uh, your packages around town do for pennies, so that their boss, 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 you know, can can fly his spaceship. Of, <laughs> right. You know mm-hmm. that that is like very real stuff, and so it and so it applies to music. Uh, we've built these institutions, we've built these things, and we've worked hard in them for so long. Um, why do we have to give it up? So for me, like it's it's about not I'm not one of those people that's like we just have to fix it for like from the inside. I'm very much of the mind that folk have to be very serious about. Um, just just dismantling the whole thing, right? And rebuilding it and saying, no, this this here, what we have doesn't work. And that's white people too. That's not just black folk, but um, this is white people's work. So like to say that black people, if you've gone to school for however many years and you've trained and you've done all this work and because your dream was to sing at the Metropolitan Opera or wherever, um, should you have to give that up because institutions are evil? No, like I I don't believe that's fair. I don't believe that's justice. And if people disagree with me, I'm actually okay with that because, like I said, like I I'm not here to discount the idea of investment. I um, divestment. I fully understand it. I just don't think it's a fair ask. What I do believe is a fair ask is that black people who those those few um, who do make it to the point where they not only have careers that can sustain them, but they have platforms and voices, I think it's fair to ask them to use those platforms and to Mm -hmm. use their voices. I think that is fair. I think it is fair to say, um, nobody walks this path alone. You didn't get where you are just by yourself. And so, you know, there is something required of you. Um, and to pretend that you can go in and just sing pretty, and if you're just professional, that will be enough. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. Because here's the thing. Racism is not based on us being unprofessional. Right? Nothing we did brought about or didn't do uh, brought mm-hmm. about racism. Because I, I believe that slaves who worked from morning till evening, from sunup to sundown, were quite professional. Um, so nothing about racism is, is about how hard we need to work as black people. Everything about racism as a system and an institution, um, is about tearing down walls, tearing down barriers, changing, um, culture and shifting culture. You have to be willing to do that. You can't hard work your way out of racism. Yeah. Ever. And yep. you definitely cannot hard work somebody else out of it. Right. My hard work is not going to bring people out of racism, not not in the sense of like my hard work being an example to make um, <laughs> to make white people like me more or believe in black people more because I didn't do anything to make them not believe in me. So. 
Do I believe that divestment is the answer? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with this idea of building your own. We know that there have always been thriving Black communities, uh, that integration killed a number of thriving Black communities, that um, violent attacks. Folks love to talk about Greenwood, but Greenwood wasn't the only space where Black Yeah, one example, right. Yeah, where Black communities were destroyed, which is also another reason why that argument of Black people just need to work hard doesn't fly. Because we know that when Black people work hard and build, and particularly when we work hard and build things for ourselves, they are systemically and systematically destroyed purposely. And so, you know... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, everybody's going to walk their own path, but I absolutely believe that um, my energy, we, we do this work. Um, we do this work of trying to dismantle racism and acknowledging that it should not be our work to do, but we do it because we need to, right? We do it because our people need it because um, and when I and when we talk about doing this work for black people, like we know that all the work that we do as black people always benefits other marginalized people, often more than it benefits us. Mm -hmm. White women uh, benefit from benefited from affirmative action and, and continue to benefit from the legacy of it more than we do. Um, we've seen in recent months um, the Asian Opera Alliance or something like that pop up with uh initiatives and ideas and videos that look very similar to the work that black people have been doing for the over you know over a year and not even mm -hmm. just last year that's why that's why i dislike that uh, partly partly why i dislike that article so much and why i think it's so dumb because this is not work black people just started doing it's just work white people just started paying attention to started seeing yeah yeah that's absolutely. their problem like don't pretend we just started talking about these things just because you just started listening um, or or because you can't ignore it anymore, right? Because George Floyd died. And so now everybody is paying attention to everything or, you know, that kind of thing. I should say George Floyd was murdered. I, I want to say right. that every time I say it. And I, it's semantics maybe, but necessary. Um, so if you feel that it's not worth the stress, um, I have seen people, Black people be absolutely broken from trying to navigate the classical music field. As someone who started a Black alumni group at Peabody and saw folk travel from literally across the country to come to Black alumni meetings at that conservatory, and every single meeting we had started with people sharing their stories and with tears. And um, and I like I've said I say this all the time. Like I don't even I can barely have this conversation without literally tearing up because I think about the faces, I think about the stories, I think about um, what do I as a young black woman say to my elders, my elders, people in their sixties, you know, people who have worked for decades who feel like they've been overlooked, um, and people who are telling the same stories as folk who graduated when I did. Yeah. Um, and so if you feel like you have been broken to the point that you just don't want to do this anymore, I respect that. And I believe that you have to care for yourself. You have to know when you want to walk away. But I also believe that this is not something that I will allow racism to steal from me. I worked for this. I worked for it and I deserve it. You know, if I want to have it, if I choose to pursue other things, I'm thankful that I have so... We all have so many gifts. One mm -hmm. of the things that we are we are really um, 
blessed or lucky or whatever you feel, you know, to, to have as artists is that we just have easily identifiable gifts. Everybody's gift is not as easily identifiable as a person who can play an instrument or sing or dance or whatever. And I'm very thankful that I have a number of easily identifiable gifts. I can write and I, and I can sing and like those things are great. Um, and I have different pathways that I can consider. That's not as easy for everybody. Some folks are like, I don't know who I am if I don't sing. Some people don't want to know who they are if they don't sing. And so mm-hmm. I believe like fully that when you when you offer divestment as the only option, then you're telling those people they have to give up on something that absolutely belongs to them as much as it belongs to anybody else. Um, I don't say that. I don't I don't want to be naive. I don't I don't think that this thing will be fixed in our lifetimes. So it's kind of like you got to weigh, you know, the the positive and the negative, I guess. Um, I'm not naive about I don't fight against racism because I think I'm going to end it. That's not even the goal Um, because it just doesn't make sense for it to be the goal. Right. It's just. I want to make as many lives better as I can right now. And I also, I mean, we're young, right? But but when I look at these kids, like when I look at Gen Z, especially I adore um, Gen Z. Like I, I'm a millennial, but I feel more in tune with them. And I feel like the kids mm-hmm. that come after them are going to be even more fiery, I hope, you know. And um, I I don't want them to have to fight the same battles. I don't, I don't want... You know, anybody who I want to leave any space better than it was when I came. And I know that I've done that. And that has meant sacrifice for me personally. That has meant burning bridges. Uh, Sometimes that has meant um, like that has meant really great sacrifice. That has meant trauma sometimes. But then I can I can look back at institutions, black and white and pinpoint specific things that have happened as a result of my voice and my work. And I don't say that because I need credit for it. I say that because that's the work, right? The um, It would be a lot easier if, if, if a few of us didn't have to do it alone. If Peter Piper pecked him, I bet you Biggie bust him. He probably tried to fuck him. I told him not to trust him. Lyrically, I dust him off like flesh, hit hard like sledgehammers. We got into my conversation with Brittany with Nikki, so I felt like on the other end of it, we had to put some Kim. I don't know if Scott, if you're familiar with the whole Nikki versus Kim debacle, and in any, you know, when when Nikki was coming out on the scene, you know, Lil Kim was still, you know, the queen bee as as she continues to call herself. So there there was a little bit of thing there. It seems like a lot of people are in a Nikki or Kim camp. I affirm and honor both of those women as uh, foundational and, and such important parts of hip hop. One reason why I chose that tune in particular, Queen Bitch, you know, again, we were talking about Biggie earlier. He helped Kim find her footing and, and find her flow. There, I won't include it here. You can look it up on the Internet. There's footage of Biggie rapping those lyrics, sort of putting down a scratch for Kim. And, mm. you know, not to say that he wrote her lyrics or, you know, uh, made up her flow, but he was someone who, you know, we can really point to as not only influential to the music itself and his own music, but the artistry of other folks. So, you know, definitely um, shout out to Kim as well as a very important part of uh, hip hop. 
hip-hop history. Getting into the triloquy, I've been sharing trills from the repertoire, but since, you know, we've been given, I've been given so many flowers to Biggie, I found a trill Did in you? his repertoire that okay. I would like to share. It, it, it actually samples uh, a James Brown tune. I think it's really uh, well-placed here, so let's take a listen. I'm all that and a dime sack. Where the paper at? But he's sticking you and taking all your money. Give me the loot. Give me the loot. Some brass trills there. Of course, we're not talking about the L U T E. <laughs> but there is a good. But, but, but someone has made a photo of Biggie with the crown holding a lute. I think I'll, I'll make that the uh, the, the photo for this year. Anyway, again, shout out, shout out, shout out to Biggie. Go listen, go listen to that um, album I, I mentioned, "Ready to Die." Incredible, incredible body of work. All right, we're here in the fourth movement. I have a a couple things to say so <laughs> i did write down here to um send a shame on you and a fuck you to all these people faking these vaccine cards I, so i went to the cedar last week i told you well you know maybe i didn't mention that at the beginning shout out to um Monque and dosi and everyone who uh performed over at the cedar cultural center in minneapolis we had to show our cards to get in and i took a picture of it and that was fine but that just felt like a thing but then also at the same time that that could have been faked so easily, and if they have caught, you know, and I'm ashamed to say this was down in my hometown of Memphis where they seized all these hundreds of fake vaccination cards. Yeah. If they've caught them now, that means they're, they're already out there. Out there. Mm-hmm. You know, as as we learned from shows like Narcos and the hard drug trade, they put some aside to be caught so that the other stuff can go through. So the show your paperwork thing, I think is, you know, is going to continue to fall apart when it comes to public health, because there have to be so many people who at least know how to fake an image of a vaccine card, much less the vaccine card itself, you know, from what we've seen. So I think, you know, these uh, performing arts institutions in particular have some thinking to do because y'all have some old ass vulnerable audiences, if I may say so. So once they start getting sick and dying off and X, Y, and Z, y'all ain't going to have nobody left to, to, to pay for your stuff. So I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is, but I feel like more of us need to think about moving forward, how we're going to deal with the actual public health crisis of COVID and not just the proofs that we put out, put out there to, to, to get into the door. Last week, we talked about the mental health crisis. Yeah, I admitted people that, are not okay. I admitted that I get out in the middle of a crowd and this, it did not, it was not this way in yeah. 2019. I could go out and be in a crowd and be fine. And now forget the pandemic. I'm just like, oh my God, there's so many people here. And I start feeling itchy and and fidgety. When we even go, uh, when Dell and I go to the grocery store to do our shopping, we're still kind of doing delivery. But if we if we need to actually look around or figure out what we're going to cook for you on Mondays, you know, we'll go to the store and kind of look around. And I'm finding myself rushing Dell. I'm like, okay, here, what do we need? I'll go grab this while you're grabbing that. And because folks are, fo- folks are dishonest and yep. I wear my mask. I'm thankful. I'm grateful to see more people wearing masks. I used to, you know, say a lot that it felt performative because it's really only the vaccinated people who are wearing the mask at the end of the day. It seems like anyway, they're the, we're the ones who care mm-hmm. enough to wear them to get the shot, much less wear the mask. But 
we we got a we got a rough time ahead of us. We really got a rough time ahead of us, especially for these arts institutions again that really centered the audiences who are most vulnerable. We're seeing that a lot of children are getting sick and dying, unfortunately. You know, so childcare and um, elementary schools need to start having this conversation. We've you know we we can get into the politics of it about how down in Texas and even in Florida there are superintendents who are going against you know the the Republican led you know the anti mandate mask thing you yep. know oh goodness gracious anyway so, are you are you gonna go to the state fair no i've decided that i'm not gonna go because if it ain't for the what you expecting me to say yes no because <laughs> those those deep fried olives man yeah you know how much you like those. I, I do but i'm gonna have to learn to do it myself because if it's not for covid i feel like somebody's gonna be out there with a gun you know yeah. as, as problematic as as all that stuff air fryer I, olives there we go. We're going to air fry them. There. And we're going we're gonna to make them gluten-free for Dell. So anyway, cool. Shout out to everybody going to the fair. It ain't going to be me this year. I hate to miss it. But I went twice last year. So maybe that one of those counts for this year. Not going to miss it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we, we opened up by talking a little bit about anti-capitalism. And I wanted to wrap up this opus by uh, circling back around to that. So um, I gave the keynote speech for this year's New Music Gathering. And one of the points that I was making is that we have to critique all of the capitalist systems that we participate in, including the way we look for, to nonprofits and foundations for funding our projects, funding composers. So I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit of my keynote here. I said in the speech, as creators, the better we get at identifying and serving our own unique audiences, the better we get at offering a product that they want to support. I think step one is practicing and performing our own values and beliefs to the highest levels of authentic self as possible. Not only have I been lucky enough to personally experience some of this through Triloquy, I'm constantly being invited to speak, curate, and do X, Y, and Z because of Triloquy. The overall point. Don't undervalue yourself by undervaluing or decentering the audience that you could benefit from. Begging a multi-million dollar institution for funding is a tried and true way to make the money work. But at the end of the day, these organizations will only give enough to maintain an arts economy of haves and have nots, winners and losers. So when we talk about all of these, you know, uh, corporations for the arts or foundations for whatever, they're doing good work in giving artists and folks on the ground funding and money to keep this stuff going, something that is really um, foundational and important, especially when it comes to new music, because it's not like the radio stations are playing them. It's not like the orchestras are out here um, platforming this music. So, so many new music professionals have to look to these foundations at the same time. These foundations will only give enough money to maintain their endowments into perpetuity. So in my keynote, you know, what I thought was just one of my trill moments that that I had to put out there was to openly challenge all of these institutions to give beyond what will keep their endowments going when it comes to um, what do you call it when you have so much money in a bank account and you, you the money builds up by interest interest you know like you have to you, I believe that these institutions have the responsibility to give beyond their interests because just giving enough to keep your own boat afloat is no different than all of the capitalist structures that oppress all of us how much more more 
good could happen if we began to decenter that self-maintenance and put forward, let's fix the now. Let's do something radical right now. So if you are out there, you know, looking for arts funding or applying for a grant, I'm not saying necessarily that you have to stop doing that. But what I am saying is that I challenge you to create your art and identify an audience that can help alleviate some of that. My vision, my vision for a future of the arts economy is one where the podcasters are supporting one another. The composers are supporting one another to where we have this sort of cyclical um, carousel of resources that we can all benefit from in our own way and, you know, keep the art alive and keep the art more authentic. Stop, you know, having to stop, uh, jump through these hoops for, you know, this little $500 here, this little $1,000 here that these different foundations are trying to, you know, push us towards. So, you know, critique the place in the global system that you are in. We talked about the tragedies in Haiti and Afghanistan and the way that we really need to think about that and not consider it something that is just so far off and something else. I think we have to critique this at every level, including the way we as artists, um, large institutions and individuals look to these foundations for money. If you work at a foundation, I challenge you to Put this narrative forward to your boss and to your uppers just to make sure that they understand the systems that they are actually upholding. And, you know, on the converse, those of us who are looking for that funding, I challenge us to look more to one another and not necessarily to these rich millionaire, sometimes billionaire foundations who aren't out here to save the world. They aren't out here to make radical change. They're out here to throw just enough peanuts to make sure that their endowments stay the same and that we continue to compete with one another instead of being able to support one another. That's not a super trill, trill, not a super inflammatory thing I have this week, but something that I just challenge everyone to think about. Let's let's think about and figure out how we can support each other and leave these, you know, rich piggy banks of organizations in the dust and let them continue to be problematic and selfish and capitalist in their own regard. So thank you everyone for listening. Speaking of capitalism, uh, go to Triloquy and click the donate button and we will uh, see y'all next week. <laughs>